Vesmir Kai Hainai Il mondo Tata Dima Potato Ngete You're listening to The World at Your Fingertips Kate and Molly here and this is our first episode <gasps> Gasp This is very I just exciting. kind of assume there's like fanfare from everyone listening because they're so excited <laughs> for this first episode yeah just like whoop, whoop. everyone is you know eagerly been waiting for yeah. this it's something they didn't us. know they needed until we're giving it to them and now they're and excited you, yeah but you know what they might listen and decide perhaps still not what we need but yeah, <laughs> let's, let's hope not we've got a very interesting episode coming up it's all about yeah. nationhood it is all about nationhood and i think as well what we're doing with this show is every week we're going to be talking about something different that perhaps interests or affects or concerns us and then have a guest on every week who also interests affects and concerns and all concerns um so uh this week yeah this week's going to be very interesting because we're talking about nationhood and uh there are lots of different ideas of nationhood and i think this is something that's quite important to look at but obviously it's so broad that we are focusing it in this week before i get into the definitions i would just like to ask what are you drinking kate oh yeah of course i'm drinking <laughs> coffee that's what i've got today as nice. per what are you drinking molly i am drinking some tea i've also got some leftover mini cream eggs uh, oh, so if you hear any munching halfway through, that is what that is. <laughs> so the so, reason, the idea that we had behind the podcast was basically, you know, we're all in isolation at the moment, but what would you do when you first meet someone and you want to talk, you start catching up, you start getting to know each other and then your discussions get deeper and you start learning more and more. And that is usually over a drink that you get to the deeper topics, that you get to the nitty gritty and really get to know someone. So we thought, why not? invite our friends from around the world to come have a drink with us and talk about something that they're really passionate about that they find interesting and just see where it goes it's basically the outline for this podcast yeah and you know that can be from that can be a tea can be a coffee can be a, some water can be a pina colada uh, <laughs> can, can be a beer can be anything because you know it tends to be it's it always seems to be these kind of scenarios whether it be in a bar or in a cafe or like maybe over dinner somewhere, like it's always, you know, there's always a drink that is consumed during these moments. So we are continuing that, even though we're sat in separate homes. Yeah. And and oh. every awkward pause that you usually fill by taking a sip when you're thinking about what to reply, we'll just edit those out. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you won't even know. And <laughs> it's fine. Who knows? Well, we're just sipping like, oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> so we are talking about nationhood. Um, and talking about the, well, we're going to start off by addressing this sort of broad definition, which I found on globalpolicy.org, and uh, talk about how that applies to us, maybe, and how that how it may be interpreted differently per country. An imagined community, a tribe on a grand scale, the nation may have a claim to to statehood or self rule but it does not necessarily enjoy a state of its own. National identity is typically based on shared culture, religion, history, language or ethnicity, though disputes arise as to who is truly a member of a na- the national community or even whether the nation exists at all. <laughs> yeah, straight away it's saying nationhood doesn't necessarily need a state of its own. It's not territorial necessarily. It's 
within the self and there's a lot of you know debate in popular culture at the moment in art and in um in politics in health even in education in everywhere as to whether nationhood is something that you decide within the self or something that is decided for you based territorially or where you live but obviously as you travel as a person who travels quite a lot and spent time living in different countries I wouldn't necessarily say you know if I suddenly moved to Germany and lived there for eight years that my sense of nationhood would be purely British it might include some German culture and it might include that because I spent so much time there and obviously that would be also a territorial move but say if one of my parents was from Italy but I've never lived there I've grown up in the UK am I half Italian because my one of my parents was Italian or am I British because this is all I've known and all I've ever experienced so there's so many different ways which you can divide this but of course when you're talking whole nation states on a global scale and millions of people are included in this it's can be such a debated topic which is what we want to get into today yeah I think it's particularly interesting to talk about in our current situation um because every nation is currently being faced with a crisis with this pandemic um and I think how how people deal with it and how I say how people how nations cope and how you know there's there's in a sense there is a feeling of togetherness amongst many nations but there's also these different specific ways that nations are dealing with it and I think it's that's really interesting and how they're approaching the countries are approaching um approaching the crisis and how maybe they are favoring different aspects whether that be economy or the well-being of people um I think quite a good example there are quite good examples through how nations are dealing with this whether you look at uh how China has dealt with it how South Korea has dealt with it and then you look at places like America uh there are a lot of European countries that have suffered um and then what that means for the nation and the people identified within that nation this sort of imagined community feel I think is very very important in when you talk about nationhood I don't know if you feel the same way Kate yeah definitely and I think we see (laughs) more of the everyday experience of people in different countries and can compare that to our own experiences and therefore when you look on social media that could even be not a nation but it makes you feel more kinmanship with people in different countries because you're seeing their experience in real time close up um, through social media through the internet so we kind of see on the news governments reacting one way um, as a representative of the nation and the national mood and then maybe social media is telling us a different story of what individuals are experiencing their reaction to it so we're we're showing the personal experience through social media and seeing a national response to it and it's interesting to think how those align or don't align yeah I think (laughs) I think we've kind of contextualized in the sort of coronavirus because I think that's important to do especially at the moment like it'd be stupid to ignore it because obviously that is definitely playing a part in nationhood and what is important within that at the moment um Mm. but I think we should uh take our sort of I don't know what call it a case study but what we're talking about more specifically this week um is Hong Kong Hong Kong has had a very raw history uh in terms of basically being passed around so um, let me just find my little notes here. Uh, so, you know, it's 
Hong Kong has been Chinese territory, then became British territory, and then it was occupied by Japan uh, during World War II, then back to British territory. And then um, there's the signing of the, the Sino, Sino, Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984, which basically meant that um, so uh, Britain occupied Hong Kong for a 99-year period from the late 1800s. And then this declaration basically meant that Britain were going to hand, hand Hong Kong back to um, China. And so currently they're in the, the transition period of 50 years from 1997 to 2046. But there are problems starting to arise. And I think a lot of this has kind of established this commu- imagined community that we're talking about amongst the people of Hong Kong. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you see, like you just described how much it has changed hands and the only real you know, said fast thing is the people of Hong Kong themselves. So I imagine that does create a real sense of unity. But it's, it's interesting how it's going from British to Chinese. And as to British people ourselves, like, that could affect our idea of being British, knowing that, you know, the turmoil in Hong Kong, I know us personally, we had nothing to do with it. But uh, our nation, in inverted commas, has had something to do with you know, creating a sense of identity turmoil for the people of Hong Kong as well. But that's like a whole different... Yeah, um, definitely, yeah. whole different podcast Well, episodes. I mean, but yeah. And, and also saying that, I think um, there is a lot of uh, stability that's been created in the, the last... I'm not, I'm not saying this is any help of the UK, but I think perhaps um, there... I don't know if this is maybe different different laws or different um I don't know enough about sort of economy laws and things like that to be able to comment fully but you know Hong Kong has really become a very well-established state in the last 100 years um they're now one of the they call the four Asian tigers I don't know what this is I still still don't really know what this is so if anyone does know what it is please tell me because in fact I am going to ask uh I'm going to ask Terry our guest about it but um the one of the four Asian tigers with Singapore South Korea and Taiwan and by the 1990s, they'd established um, itself, the country had established itself as a global finance centre. So to transfer back to Chinese rule would apparently mean that a lot of this would have to change due to the legislation and laws of China. You know, it's hard to go from success to potential not success rather than the other way around. So when you've achieved that level of stability and independence in your economy as a country, I imagine that, you know it's not only the economy that's threatened, it's the liberty of the people who now have access to, you know, more money because it's available in the country. But also, I just sort of looked at the dates from 1997 to 2046 is this transition period. It's Mm. interesting that we're discussing this when, you know, 50 years contextually doesn't seem that long, but we're discussing this and that's the entirety of our lives. We'll be 50 by the time, you know, this had been decided, this transition period be over. Um, and it's crazy to think that, you know, as two 23, 22 year olds, we're discussing this when essentially this transition period has been our whole lives. Yeah. It's a long period of time for us to comprehend. Yeah. Mm. And, um, I think as well, I don't know, I, I, from the state of things that I've seen, again, it'd be interesting to talk to Terry about this, um, in more detail, but from the state of things at the moment, I feel like that transition is being rushed along by uh, Carrie Lam, who is the 
I think is it the president or the prime minister in, in Hong Kong. So she's really mm. hurrying along this uh, this transition. There was a period between 1984, which was when the joint declaration was signed, and 1997, where basically there was this mass wave of emigration as the residents of Hong Kong feared an erosion of civil rights, um, the rule of law and quality of life. So it seems people really don't want to this transition to happen, which is hence why all the protests going on at the moment. But obviously, it's happening. And I, it's going to be difficult to stop. So I suppose that really is going to have a great impact on this. I say great as in like massive, not positive. I don't know whether it will be positive or negative. But by the sounds of things, people aren't pleased. Um, so I think it'll have this impact on the sense of nationhood and for these people. And it's like the impact The impact of this transition is really going to shape how nationhood is in Hong Kong, yeah. uh, how it's how this imagined community functions and what elements are going to change and stuff like that. So, yeah. But it's interesting to think, you know, reading this and it like Hong Kong being passed between China and the UK, it's so interesting to think that like, you know, in our minds as being uh, British, like the idea of um, colonialism, imperialism being over. But when you're talking about massive economies such as China and, well, the UK, but obviously not to the extent of China, when you're talking about that economic force and the power that that brings you on a political stage um, globally and the ability to, you know, take charge of Hong Kong, it's so interesting to think that the majority, like the majority of their power, is in their industry and the fact that they're such a economic force, and that gives them the power to, you know, what is Hong Kong meant to do versus China because of the comparative like economies and what can be done. It'd be interesting to see what Cherry, you know, thinks about this and just kind of thinks. I don't want it to be doomsday, you know. It's it's all hopeless, but. You know what I mean? Yeah, that no, does completely. sound really depressing, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Well, I, I just, I just before we uh, introduce our guests, I just want to talk about this, uh, this article I found um, on mm. China Daily, which basically claims that Hong Kong shouldn't even be recognised as a nation due to its Chinese heritage and history, and the fact that the state was created through uh, migration from mainland. Um, mm. And he. The, the author he defines I, I'm not sure of his name I I don't think I, I'm not on the website right now I'm not sure of his <laughs> name but the author of this article um said that he he said that a nation is um united by common descent and so and that's it puts some emphasis on the fact that it's about descent and if you're recognizing it that way then yeah Hong Kong is is of Chinese descent but so maybe that's perhaps why China feel that they should have Hong Kong as part of China I don't know why maybe they feel a sense of ownership because of that reason uh and whether that's a fair call to make I'm not really sure but you know that's something I think someone from Hong Kong could talk about and so yeah I'm excited to discuss all of this with Cherry I hope that all made sense. But I'm yeah. excited to discuss this with our guest. So, hey, Cherry. Hi. How you Welcome. doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Rona is still rampant around here, but we're good. We survived. 
That's good. Excellent. As Excellent. long as you're still alive, that's that's great to hear. Cherry, what are you drinking? I am drinking only the finest of drinks ever. Water, because, you know, I'm boring. Mm. To be fair, it's probably too late for you to drink caffeine in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's nine fifty-two in the evening right now. I think that's the last thing I want to drink right now. (laughs) That's so true. But thank Uh, you so much for joining us when it's so late in the evening for you. No, no worries. I'm glad to help. Um, Also, just because I'm not working anyway right now, so why not help out my friends? Do you you just give us a bit of background about you, Cherry? Like uh, what you do and what you've been up to. Uh, So I am a third-year film student, same as Molly. Uh, I'm from Hong Kong. I was born in Canada, but I was raised here for all my life. Uh, and I went to international school. So that's why I have a bit of an accent. Uh, yeah. That's about it. You're fascinating already. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Literally, I mean, kicking off with like born in Canada, that already just makes your life so much more interesting than mine. (laughs) <laughs> just like born in well let me considering i was only there for about a week after i was born i haven't been back since it's not that exciting it's so uh. funny though because i was literally born about 10 miles from my current position so i feel like i've traveled <laughs> really far in my life yeah me actually me too so yeah we've done kate high five yeah. virtual high five we've done we've done we've well gone nowhere <laughs> literally last. nothing oh. yeah it's so emotional so that's quite interesting it's not your straightforward upbringing I guess going you're born in Canada moved to Hong Kong I know you're obviously very young when you moved to Hong Kong and then you went mm-hmm. through international school so yeah. speaking English and Cantonese as a bilingual child from a very mm-hmm. very long young age right so how old were you mm-hmm. like four? Uh, four I think I probably started actually learning English when I was three that's amazing mm-hmm. that like being able to speak two languages from that age is unreal I think that's so cool so we're going to bring back this article that we were talking about before, Kate. So um, I think you've had a chance to read it now, Cherry, have you? The yes, China Daily one. And we'd like to hear your thoughts on that, basically. Well, I mean, I could definitely tell that this was very pro-China. And I actually did look it up. And China Daily is, in fact, owned by the Communist Party of China. So oh, I'm guessing oh. that pretty much anything they publish has to be in favour of China. Um, even if it isn't, you know, directly shitting on Hong Kong, as most of the articles will probably be, um, it'll just have to kind of disregard Hong Kong entirely. And also, interestingly, um, I don't know if both of you saw, but the author is a professor at one of the unis in Hong Kong. So yeah, I just kind of think it's kind of a little interesting that, you know, someone who teaches in Hong Kong and has current exposure to Hong Kong is able to write. Uh, a pretty biased piece about Hong Kong in general. I was just thinking, like, because obviously, for, as a British person looking at that, if I didn't then look into the publication and I didn't look further into it, I'd see Sunny Lo, who teaches in Hong Kong, is saying that Hong Kong shouldn't be, um, like, independent from China, which is so interesting if you don't do that further research into where the article is sourced from and, like, the, about the publication. Like, you could so easily just fall into mm-hmm. the trap of being, like, people from Hong Kong think this and it's like no that's it's so much deeper than that as well I think it also depends on like which generation you were born into so probably I would say obviously older generations tend to feel more of a connection with maybe their Chinese side whereas people who were you know still young um, during the British occupation they would feel more of a connection to like the I would say like a Hong Konger identity so Mm -hmm. I mean maybe this person was alive or maybe was raised around people who were just kind of 
more pro-China. So, I mean, that's a huge influence in his view. But, I mean, to entirely disregard Hong Kong as a nation is, is a pretty risky move. That's Yeah, I can imagine that's quite an interesting read <laughs> for you. And mm-hmm. you talk about how the author as well is also a Hong Kong professor. That's like quite... That is strange when, you know, it must be so jarring to read something like that about um, a perception of your your own nationhood or your own, you know, where you live and the the community in which you live in. Uh, and to read someone else's perception, but someone who's also within that community, it must be really strange. I, I don't know what you think on that, Kate, as well, but I I think that must be very strange to read. Yeah, I think it makes sense though, of course, you were you went to an international school within Hong Kong and you very when you were very young you learned to speak English. And obviously not that, you know, English is necessary to have a different point of view in the world, but it must be interesting to have that influence from different countries in your upbringing. Do you think that changed the way you sort of think about Hong Kong's position in the world more globally and like in relation to China? Do you think that's been affected by like the schooling that you had within Hong Kong. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, um, again, bringing it back to learning English, I'm able to gain other people's view on Hong Kong as well, but then to be surrounded by foreign influences as well, it definitely shapes my view, whereas um, someone who doesn't maybe speak English, um, this kind of sounds like a, a weird sentence to say, maybe as well as I do, they would have maybe a more localized view. But, I mean, yeah, it definitely shapes me and my perception of Hong Kong entirely. In terms of your, your own identity and like your family, th- what was their attitude towards you coming to study in the UK? Does that relate at all towards like your identity as a person from Hong Kong and within your family? Like when you were seeing all the protests whilst you were studying within the UK, that must have been so being on the other side of the world and in a completely different time zone. How did you sort of respond to that as a person? Because it must be so complicated Uh, within your own mind to sort of connect those two elements of your identity. mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, with my parents studying abroad, because I have an older brother as well, and he studied abroad in Australia. And, you know, studying abroad for kids in Asia is like a pretty common thing. So they had really no oppositions. And I expressed that, you know, it doesn't matter where I go and study as long as, you know, the institution I go to actually provides what I want to study then they were totally fine with it and um, with the protests and stuff I didn't actually really follow up with the news as in local Hong Kong news that tightly until it started gaining more traction so I would say around maybe it had started building in around late May but then I only picked up about it in June and you know seeing a bunch of young people like kids my age or even, even not people within that age group, just older generation especially, because, you know, you would assume that people who are raised in a different generation than us wouldn't necessarily have the same views. Um, but just seeing all these people, um, regardless of when it was peaceful protests in the beginning or violence, you know, towards um, the lady periods, all fighting for the same things. And, you know, we all just want what's best for us, especially since we've been controlled by China so much. Uh, it definitely strengthened my identity as a Hong Konger because, you know, we're, as they say in High School Musical, we're all in this together. (laughs) (laughs) So were you reading sort of British or European coverage of Hong Kong or were you reading? I think I was following um, both BBC and um, 
I was following different publications as well in Hong Kong because obviously there are so many different um, publishing locations that you can choose to read from. So there are some that are going to be more in favor towards China. There are going to be some that are more in favor towards um, people who have um, the sort of pro-protester sort of view, so pro-democracy. So I chose one that was in Chinese and one was in English as well that was supporting the protesters. So, I mean, obviously, because depending on where you read the article, you can get an entirely different view of the same event that happened. Yeah, definitely. So did you find that publications from Hong Kong had a deeper understanding or an understanding more aligned with your own than, say, like BBC News did? I think so, because um, I tended to notice that foreign publications tend to only um, talk about what's important. So, I mean, they didn't really start to bring up any of the sort of violent outbreaks that there were. I mean, they probably would have only talked about the most significant one, which was when um, the protesters sort of stormed into the legislative complex. But otherwise, I mean, they don't really go into like proper detail, whereas the local ones, even just Chinese, so regardless of if they come from China or other Chinese-speaking countries, um, the ones that are local to Hong Kong definitely go way more into detail. Sorry, we're just kind of assuming that everyone listening sort of followed the the protests in well 2019 and 20 they're still ongoing right all the pro- well so i think they're currently on hold now just because of um rona just because yeah. it's not safe to go out just if you could give us like a lowdown of like what they sort of wanted as a result of the protests, just because some people might not have followed it which is i think quite reasonable you know there's always so much news going on that knowing everything so is quite impossible. Do you want to just give us like a quick rundown of what they wanted, what the protests were about? Okay, sure. Um, so basically, in around June, um, the Hong Kong government introduced the extradition bill, which was basically a law that allowed criminals in Hong Kong to be sent to the mainland, uh, and they would be judged uh, for their crimes according to mainland China's um, legal system, which is a lot harsher than ours. Um, so mm. it kind of restricts um just sort of everyone's freedom and it inhibits their privacy and whatnot so people were really pissed off about that because even if you aren't a criminal even if you just express any views that are pro-democracy or anti-china you could basically get sent into china and could be thrown into jail indefinitely for god knows how long so um basically a lot of protesters are angry and they had these um, five demands that they wanted to be met. Um, so they wanted the extradition bill to be withdrawn. Um, they wanted uh, a more in-depth and more sort of transparent view on police brutality, because that was a huge thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted any sort of existing protesters to be released from jail. Um, they wanted to remove the, the term rioters just because... Um, people were feeling that it was sort of a, a bit of a broad term to use and a bit of a harsh one as well. And they wanted the current chief executive, uh, Carrie Lam, to step down just because, I mean, people don't really take her seriously here. Um, so these protests started in around June. And I would say like the peak of them were really towards the summer. Uh, and they have been pretty much ongoing. So the bill is removed now entirely. But, you know, as long as the the demands aren't met, then, you know, people just aren't going to stop. I think there's something quite, um, I don't want to say nice, because there was a lot of bad uh, things that were a consequence of these protests, like people 
were injured people people died didn't they cherry mm-hmm. yeah, yeah like students like young people died as well as well a, a whole lot of people died and um and obviously that's that's not what you want isn't it that's like a sad thing to have to happen however um you know earlier we were talking about how um there was this mass emigration after they announced that the after they announced that the tra- the transition period in 1984 after the joint declaration between britain and china um there was a lot there was a lot of emigration lots of people left hong kong uh, because mm. it wasn't somewhere they wanted to be but the fact that there are still so many people living in Hong Kong and so passionate about about standing their ground and holding on to this this national identity, I think there's something really quite wonderful about that. I know that sounds like I, I don't know if I'm making it seem really utopian. I don't know if that's kind of I don't mean it to sound like that, but I think there's something really brilliant about the fact that people are standing together and whether it will make a difference I don't know like what do you think about that Terry do you think that these these protests are going to get anywhere do you think that people are going like do you think China is going to respond to Hong Kong or do you think it is just going to happen I mean ideally I would love for it to happen just because um although these demands do seem amazing to start with I just don't really feel like it'll be really realistic or we won't be able to get all of them just because, you know, Hong Kong is still technically under China and they kind of treat us as like the runt of the family. You know, they don't really care about us. Um, you know, you do you. And then we'll just, you know, rein it in when the time comes. So, um, yeah. So, so are you saying that you, uh, you would love for Hong Kong to be able to establish itself with like independent of China? So I feel like I would be... It would be nice to be entirely separate from China, but, you know, I would still be okay with the system that we have now, which is the one country, two systems. So we're a semi-autonomous region, as in we are still part of China, but, you know, we have our own way of doing things. So do you think, though, being, you know, you said sort of the runt of China, like the little sibling, do you think that sort of in terms of your own nationhood and the nationhood of Hong Kongers, do you think that sort of you know, banded you together in empowerment, the fact that you, you're you sort of all together. Didn't Carrie Lam describe Hong Kong as, what was it, the naughty child? Oh, yeah, or... it was like a press conference that she did or some sort of press interview that she did that was released onto TV um, when the protesters were still... This was like the peak of the movement. She described uh, Hong Kong to be like... Um, I don't remember the exact term, but she described Hong Kong to be like a sort of disobedient child that doesn't listen to its mother, uh, its mother being China, which was really shocking Mm. to everyone. Um, But definitely, I feel like even pretty much since the handover, just because, you know, we sort of, I wouldn't say lost, but we definitely, um, you know, have a significant part of our culture being taken away from us with foreign influences. And then, you know, um, China has pretty much been starting to gain control over us, even though we were granted 50 years of sort of freedom, as in we're allowed to do our own thing. But I feel like the sort of Hong Kongers identity was definitely strengthened after the handover since everyone sort of felt this um, like gray area, as in they didn't really know what to do with themselves. 
now that the people who were in charge of us are now gone and we're sort of left to our own defenses. So I feel like the Hong Kong identity strengthened from the handover onwards and with sort of major events that happened to us. From what I've read, I feel like that's quite clear that um, this there has been this sense of solidarity, particularly in more recent examples of the protests and the, the is it the umbrella movement in 2014. Um, so. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the about this sense of identity and how kind of from the perspective of how it's treated by the UK and China you know because Hong Kong didn't really have any control over this handover declaration that was signed in 1984 and mm-hmm. then talking more recently with Carrie, Carrie Lam as well. Like you, So earlier, I wasn't sure. I, I said to Kay, I was like, is she the prime minister or the president? And then you've described her as the chief executive. That's mm-hmm. the title of someone who runs a business. And so yeah. it seems as if, like, you know, Hong Kong is, because obviously it's such a successful economic financial centre in the world. And then the chief executive is the person who's sort of, I don't know, not running, running the state or running the running the government, right, in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And yeah. I don't know, how does that make you feel in terms of identity under either Britain or China? How does that make you feel in terms of not really having much control over it? Well, I mean, I've kind of been looking into this just because, you know, not to flex or anything, but I'm doing a diss uh, basically about Hong Kong politics and how that's sort of reflected into film. And... um so prior to the British invasion, we weren't pretty much considered significant to China at all. We were pretty much a trading port. And then, you know, with the hundred years of British rule, I mean, people, I can't obviously speak for the people who were alive then, but I feel that, you know, um, there was a sort of like mutual agreement between the British and the Chinese, you know, just kind of get along with each other. And they did bring lots of good things for us. So I feel that, you know, after that, that was taken away from us. And then we had to go to China who did own us, but, you know, we obviously didn't have that much of a connection to them. It just made us sort of feel estranged to the whole country. And that is opinion. That that is an opinion that is probably still pretty significant now. So is that, is that the return, the more recent, as in like the transition period you're referring to? Yeah. So we were supposed to have 50 years of freedom, but, you know, China has started to tighten their grip a lot earlier and that's just pissed off a bunch of people because you know you weren't supposed to come in until much later so why are you starting now and mm-hmm. you know that's ticked off a bunch of people and you know Carrie Lam is basically China's puppet she has to do everything they say um, she was basically a pre-selected candidate uh, amongst a bunch of people that we could choose to be our chief executive so she has to approve for China in order to for us to choose her, which people didn't really understand, hence the 2014 protests. So basically, nobody really takes her seriously here. That's so interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) well, what I'm just thinking as well, your dissertation is in uh, the effect on that on film. But of course, like, I just want to understand more about this transition period, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and their censorship of material is that are they beginning to sort of impose a uh, a degree of censorship on Hong Kong? Is that what they're wanting to bring in by bringing them more into China? 
So I'm I luckily I don't think anything's being censored yet because um unlike China we are able to use sort of any sort of foreign sites so you know anything any social media platforms any sort of foreign search engines are entirely banned in China whereas you know we have the freedom to do whatever we want and uh censorship is definitely not a thing here but um I think in local schools there was a huge uproar uh amongst a bunch of students because a lot of the history that they learned in textbooks were being changed so they were being modified to be pro China or as in they were you know pretty much retelling the event entirely wrong so i think the key incident with that was because the tiananmen square incident as in the massacre that happened in 1989 was being um sort of twisted to be more pro china so that's definitely one of the effects um also um taboo topics can't really be discussed um if you're someone who's in China and you decide to discuss something taboo you will probably get shut down immediately um so anyone in Hong Kong who is probably if they have like a mainland account and they write something like that then that's going to get taken down or their account will be removed entirely um yeah. but otherwise in Hong Kong um nothing like that has happened so far except for the textbook thing that I just mentioned like it's more like almost the possibility of that being applied to Hong Kong must threaten people's idea of nationhood and yeah, you know definitely. taking away liberties so much is that like a major issue as well that people are having the sort of it's the possibility of what could be applied to hong kong rather than yeah, the current I think situation that's, that's definitely like the biggest fear that people have is that you know in 50 years we won't even be we might not even be considered a special administrative re- region anymore we'll just be part of china and you know all of hong kong will just cease to exist anymore which horrifies people i mean i can't imagine what it's like for people who were alive during before the handover but you know even though i was born after the handover and you know still being able to live in this 350 years of freedom having that you know just ripped away from you entirely scares me yeah absolutely yeah. i was going to i was going to ask actually about how how you think this is going to impact your idea of nationhood as a hong konger if you like do you think you'll as time goes on that you'll remain in hong kong um or whether or do you think do you anticipate that this will have such an impact that it might make you want to leave like where do you stand on that well i mean originally um i was planning to stay in uk after graduation just cuz you know there's more opportunity in uk for what i want to do when i graduate but i mean i was gonna plan to come back to hong kong even though you know living costs are ridiculous here i would love to settle down here just cuz i was raised here for most of my life i'm more comfortable here but knowing that the political situation now is already tense i honestly have no idea what it'll be like by the time i settle down and i just decide to live here cuz you know we could probably be china before the the 50 period the 50 years of freedom expires so i don't know i'll just have to see how it goes but i will definitely stay true as a hong konger cuz god knows i'm not associating with china yeah i mean i think you what you've said there is really interesting about how you're forever going to be a hong konger regardless of whether hong kong even sort of exists as a separate a separate a separate sense of nationhood within the next mm-hmm. 50 years Do you think that will ring true with a lot of other people as well who are in Hong Kong? Do you think they will regardless of whether they stay in Hong Kong or not, regardless of whether Hong Kong will just become China? I'd like to think that most of the 
population will definitely stay true to the Hong Konger identity because there are, you know, some people that just um, will just say that they are Chinese, but, you know, they won't say, but I'm a Hong Konger, I'm not from China. Um, yeah, I think just the mass group of uh, population in Hong Kong will definitely stay true to their identity because, you know, this is our country, you know, we do things differently here. So why should we be associated with those who are just similar to us? It's it's frightening to think about if they're already beginning to censor um, textbooks and history. It's frightening to think that if Hong Kong does become uh, just a part of China, like many others, and sort of lose its own independent identity, how that would change in history books, how it would change not only for the people who are experiencing that transition now, but in 70 years when there's a whole new generation who won't understand potentially that Hong Kong was separate, that it did have a separate identity. And just sort of, it's frightening to think that that could disappear. Not to be a downer on you, Cherry, but it's it's frightening. Yeah, I know. I wonder if, um, if Hong Kong and what's happened, perhaps not in the period now, but over the last 100 years, will remain alive within the the British textbooks and things like that. But of course, it's still, it won't be the same because, mm-hmm. it, well, it just won't be. Talking about how Britain ruled over Hong Kong is not the same as being someone who lived through that. Or, you know, also this period that we're living in right now is so historically important. I say we, mm-hmm. as if I'm there. The period that, you know, you, Cherry, are going through this transition, um, I think, I just think it's too important to forget about. And I think that, mm-hmm. I hope that there is some, in some capacity, this is published and it's remembered. And and this I, this national identity of a Hong Konger just doesn't, doesn't die out because it's so unique. It's such a unique mm-hmm. a national identity in comparison to, to any other nation across the world. I think it's so unique and it would be such a shame for that to be taken away mm-hmm. yeah definitely i i would absolutely hate for them to just disregard us and just lump us with the rest of china like you know obviously every little different state in china has their own identity but you know at the end of the day they're just people of china whereas we are entirely different to them uh yeah i don't know just thinking about that really worries me but you know we live, we get through it. Do you think it's important for other countries, they have a moral responsibility, such as the UK, to tell the story in like hundreds of years time of the nation of Hong Kong and the history of Hong Kong, even if Hong Kong technically becomes part of China? Do you think there is a moral responsibility for other countries around the world, even if it's not the UK, if it's you know an African country, if it's any country to keep alive a sense of history and a sense of nationhood for these people who have don't yeah don't have a choice but to become part of China if that makes yeah, sense yeah i would definitely love for other countries uh let's say in the future if uh you know our history is wiped by mainland china that other countries pick up on it and especially countries that were previously uh occupied by different leaders so um any sort of countries that have been colonized or any sort of separate regions that are still currently being run, such as Taiwan is pretty much the same as Hong Kong in the fact that we were um, separate regions. And then, you know, 
uh, China basically still has control over us, but you know they do things differently over there, and they pretty much loathe China just like we do as well. So I definitely feel that it's important for different nations and nations that were previously colonized um, to educate people about Hong Kong. Uh, you know, even if it isn't hugely significant, just to let people know that we did exist in a period of time and that um, we were different from China. Yeah, I mean, I think actually that's a that's a good point to to stop. But thank you so much, Terry, honestly, because even though we've been friends for years, I feel like you've just completely broadened like what I knew already about Hong Kong to a whole new level. And you also, I you have such a way of speaking that really makes you understand, like in a way you really are able to make us see from your viewpoint. And I think that's you know, a very good skill. And I think that that's going to really come across in this to our listeners as well. So thank you so much. I feel like I've just learned so much. I'm kind of in shock thank still. Thank you for just having me. Honestly, here. I was surprised that I could even say, you know, eloquent stuff like that. Because honestly, I'm just thinking about this on the spot. But I think also it's like, not only it's different because obviously we did research for this podcast but like reading about stuff you don't really get the nuances of what it's like to experience it or what it could mean in terms of like someone's own personal experience you know and their personal history and how it could affect their future and like the sense of displacement until you talk from someone who's actually experiencing it so thank you so much for just bringing that cherry it's been really really interesting yeah no worries I'm glad to spread the word (laughs) (laughs) oh and like you said as well like British uh news publications might not give as much information as you know local ones do in Hong Kong so Mm -hmm. for you to be able to tell us more about um about, about Hong Kong about what is happening in Hong Kong right now and what is expected for the future I think is really informative for us to know and for us to be able to think about and yeah it's it's scary it is scary and I think thank you so much for sharing your your perspective with us and your story with us no worries no worries I'm glad to help and all of that over a glass of water Uh. (laughs) imagine me drunk yeah who even needs a pub when you could just have a phone call over a glass of water it's practically the same (laughs) absolutely well thank you very much terry and uh thank you to everyone who has been listening this week and we'll see you next week